0: It's a wonderful day to be with you all, God's people, as we open God's Word together. And so let's now ask His Spirit to minister to us as we open His Word. Father, we do ask for You to do the very work that You intend to do through us. We are sinners. We're tired. We're weary. We're in desperate need of Your grace day after day. We need You every hour. And so I pray now that as we open your precious word together, that you would speak to us directly the very word that you have for us. I pray in each of our hearts we would have an attitude of submission and reverence of your word and of, of you, the God who gave it to us. And as for your ministry among us by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What are you afraid of? If you were to make a list of the things that cause you legitimate fear, what would be on it? Would it be snakes or spiders? Dentists or the dark? Crowds or clowns? (laughs) Heights or small spaces? Flying on planes or doing what I'm doing right now, speaking in public? These are the things that might come quickly to mind for you. Each of us would at least have something on our list. But what about the less obvious fears that are just as powerful and pervasive? Fears of failure in school, at work, in life. The fear that you don't have what it takes to make it. What about fears like losing your job or never getting the right one? Some have a fear uh, of getting, uh, fear about getting too close to other people Fears of intimacy, and others have fear that they'll always be alone. There's also the fear of fitting in or the fear of not being found out, that you're not who people think you are, who you pretend to be. Fear is a powerful influence, and there are endless things of which we can be afraid. And it often functions below the surface. We see the results without knowing that fear is operating and causing them. Christian counselor Ed Welch suggests that fears tend to cluster in three large categories, money, namely not having enough, people, such as a fear of rejection or failure, and death. Now, I don't think of myself as being a particularly fearful, worrisome, or anxious person, but since reading those three categories of fear several weeks ago, I've come to confess that I struggle with all three of them. And of the three, Welch writes, People are the most complicated of these threats. They can kill us and keep us from certain jobs, so they can carry the dual threats of death and money. But they can also slander us, not accept us, ignore us, bring shame that feels worse than death, and not love us when we love them. People can make us feel worthless. They're the source of our everyday fears. Each of these people-related fears have one thing in common. And that's a struggle with seeing people as more powerful and more significant than God. And the fear of man has the ability to make us do unwise things. And this is where we find David in our passage this morning, 1 Samuel 21. At this point in our study of David, it has become unmistakably clear to him, and of course us as we uh, see the narrative unfold, that his life is in danger. Saul, the king of Israel, not to mention his father-in-law and the father of his best friend Jonathan, wants to kill David, and this sends David on the run. But it's not necessarily his flight that's the problem. Running actually seems wise, considering his complicated relationship with the jealous, murderous king. The problem is what David does while he's on the run, things that demonstrate his fear of man. The control that he's given to Saul in the place of dependence on God. And in this passage, we'll see David lie out of fear. We'll see him rely on a weapon of war that he once forsook instead of inquiring of the Lord. And we'll find the future king seeking sanctuary with the enemies of God. We begin to see cracks in David's armor that he isn't the perfect hero that we long to emulate. And David is a man after God's own heart. He's a man who's empowered by God's Spirit, the man whom God has chosen and anointed to be the next king of Israel. And if he struggles with fear, then certainly we will too. But there's hope for all of us. After the events of this passage, David penned two Psalms, and it's what he learned from his own struggles with the fear of man that provide the theme for our passage— in the face of fear depend desperately on God our deliverer. There's hope for us in this passage and in the Psalms that he wrote as we face our own fears whether obvious and named or insidious and hiding in the shadowy corners of our hearts. So let's turn our attention to God's word to 1st Samuel 21 as we find David resorting to deception deception that will result and a deadly disaster. First Samuel 21, starting with verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest, and Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? Now David is officially on the run, and since the king of the land wants him dead, he's in a precarious position. He obviously can't stay anywhere near Saul's capital of Gibeah. And when he tried to find refuge with Samuel and the other prophets in Ramah, Saul found him there too. The king isn't safe, the prophets aren't safe, and so David runs to the next obvious place of potential help and harbor, and that is the priests of Israel. They live in Nob, located roughly between Gibeah and Jerusalem. Now for 300 years, dating back to the time of Joshua, uh, Shiloh had been the main priestly city for Israel. It was the site of the tabernacle and Israel's worship throughout the period of the Judges. Shiloh was the place where Samuel had grown up as a boy under the mentorship of Eli, but the Philistines, earlier in the book of 1 Samuel, attacked Shiloh and likely destroyed it. The ark was lost and then eventually returned, finding a home in a town called Kiriath-Jerim. So the tabernacle, the center of Israel's worship, even without the ark, is evidently now in Nob, what's called the city of priests in the next chapter. The high priest is a man named Ahimelech. He's the great-grandson of Eli, and Ahimelech is surprised and scared when David arrives at Nob alone. This is the famous warrior, David. This is Saul's son-in-law, David, and perhaps word had reached Ahimelech that this is also the future king, David, anointed by the prophet Samuel. One would expect a person of such power and prestige and influence to travel with a retinue or at the very least, a few soldiers as protection. But David is alone, and this frightens Ahimelech for what it could mean since there's no Twitter to tell him the latest breaking news. Well, perhaps he's heard of Saul's jealous attacks on David, and he doesn't want any trouble himself. And Ahimelech's fear forces David to deceive the priest in the answer he provides in verse 2. And David said to him, like the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I've made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now, some suggest that David isn't technically lying here because he merely refers to the king, which could mean the king, God. He's been sent on a mission by Yahweh, is what they suggest. But it's hard to imagine God saying the specific words that David quotes. That he's been sent on a super-secret mission, never mind the fact that David has already lied in the previous chapter when he gave Jonathan a made-up reason to explain his absence from Saul's table. Trying to put a positive spin on David's deception is a hopeless cause. And lying is one of the first signs that we are gripped by the fear of man. It shows that we're not entrusting ourselves to God's sovereign hand, that we're not resting in his goodness and his love, but instead we're twisting the narrative for what seems to be, at least at the time, for our own benefit. But as we soon find out, David's deception is a deadly miscalculation for Ahimelech, for all the priests who serve at Nob, and for the women, children, and animals who live there. Little lies might seem to offer short-term gain, but their long-term effect is rarely harmless. It's a selfish move on the part of David. Just think for a second. If you could be put in danger for helping someone, wouldn't you at least want to know the cost in advance? The priest might have even offered wisdom in his predicament, but David doesn't even give him the chance. Jesus' commentary on this exchange in Matthew 12 seems to suggest at least that David did have Uh, some companions that were waiting for him. He refers to those who were with him, something that the all-knowing God-man wouldn't have done if they didn't really exist. But whether David was sent by Yahweh or not, it's clear he's holding back the truth about his fear-filled flight from Saul. He's deliberately deceiving Ahimelech, and as a fugitive, David has two pressing needs, food and a weapon. And in verse 3, he starts by asking the priest for five loaves of bread, presumably for him and his men. Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there's holy bread if the young men have kept themselves from women. Now, Himalek has no common bread on hand, he says. The only food that he has is the holy or consecrated bread. Verse 6 makes it clear that this is the bread of the presence, or what's also called showbread. Leviticus 21 stipulates that each Sabbath, the priests were to take and place 12 loaves of this bread of the presence, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, arranged in two rows on the table table of showbread in the tabernacle. And the bread would sit there on the table uneaten before the presence of the Lord for an entire week. And then the priests would then replace them on the next Sabbath with fresh hot loaves. It's just bread sitting on a table before God. Only the priests and the family families were entitled to eat the old loaves as long as they ate them in a holy place. But David is so clearly in need of food that Ahimelech is willing to give these old loaves to him and his men, but with a minimum standard of consecration. He supplies one condition for this provision that that David and his men have abstained from sexual relations for three days. This, of course, is not to suggest uh, that, that there's anything wrong or sinful about intimacy between a husband and a wife. Quite the opposite. It's a blessing from God that unites married couples. But this is not about moral impurity. It's about ritual impurity. And Leviticus indicates that the loss of certain bodily fluids renders a person ritually unclean. That's the message that we see throughout Leviticus. Leviticus also provides the steps for regaining ritual purity. So by placing this caveat on his gift, the priest is simply ensuring that this holy bread, which had been in God's holy presence, which was only intended for God's holy priests, wouldn't be eaten by men who are ritually impure. And in verse 5, David assures Ahimelech that he and his men meet this standard. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it's an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord, to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now, Jesus looked back on this very exchange, and he used it to address the issue of the Sabbath. The Pharisees, the strict religious leaders of Jews in his day, saw Jesus and his disciples plucking heads of grain and eating them on the Sabbath, and they declared this unlawful because it constituted work. It was the equivalent of a harvest on God's day of rest. And then Jesus responds to their challenge in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Now Jesus is saying what David did was technically unlawful. His eating of the bread violated the clear understanding of the commandment. Why is it then when Saul offered a sacrifice in violation of the law, God condemned him and he stripped the kingdom from his hands. But when David eats the showbread in violation of the law, Jesus doesn't condemn him. Well, Saul offered the sacrifice out of fear, fear that his army would deplete, fear of failure, fear of defeat. He violated the law out of impatience and self-preservation But in this particular instance, in the eating of the bread, David isn't looking for advantage. He's merely trying to survive. Jesus was constantly challenging the Pharisees' strict interpretation of the law. And most frequently, it occurred as they condemned his healing on the Sabbath. They should have been leaping for joy that God had healed someone on his holy day. But instead, they looked down their nose at Jesus for doing work. Later in that conversation in Matthew 12, Jesus asked the Pharisees, which one of you who has a sheep, if it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out? In essence, he's asking them, why not show the same concern for people that you have for your livestock? And he turns the scrutiny of his accusers back to them when he says in Matthew 12, 7, and if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Quoting Hosea 6.6, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is pointing back to Ahimelech's provision and David's partaking of the consecrated bread in a matter of emergency, and he's saying that this act of compassion on the part of the priest, this demonstration of mercy in the face of true need was actually a fulfillment of God's law, which is summarized by loving God and loving our neighbors as ourselves. Now, by now, you should feel the tension of this section. On the one hand, David shouldn't have violated God's commandment about bearing false witness in his deception of Ahimelech. So how then did Ahimelech know that giving David the showbread would fulfill the spirit of the law, if not the letter? Well, maybe he didn't. But applying this particular principle requires great wisdom. I appreciate the words of Augustine here. In seeking knowledge of God's will, he writes, it is necessary to have our hearts subdued by piety and not to run in the face of Holy Scripture, whether when understood it strikes some of our sins or when not understood, we feel as if we could be wiser and give better commands ourselves. We must rather think and believe that whatever is there written, even though it be hidden, is better and truer than anything we could devise by our own wisdom." In his lying, David seems to be running in the face of Scripture, while Ahimelech, who insists on consecration before the bread can be eaten, does not. Is the post-truth nature of our world affecting your view of Scripture? Is your general disposition toward the Bible a sincere attempt to understand what God says and then submit yourself in reverence and obedience to it? Or is there an area of your life where you're running in the face of Scripture, perhaps little indiscretions that have become more frequent and more serious? Is fear somehow disrupting your application of God's Word? We all need this reminder of the importance of submission to God's Word and pursuing it faithfully with counsel in community with other believers to help us understand exactly what God is saying and then obey it together. Now there's one more verse in this section. In verse 7, we're introduced to a witness of this whole exchange between David and Ahimelech. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. There's a shady figure lurking in the shadows, and his name is Doeg, the Edomite, Saul's chief shepherd. As this verse is revealed, you can almost hear the music in the background. Dun-dun-dun. And his mention here serves to foreshadow what will happen in the next chapter, what, what we'll consider together after missions conference in a few weeks. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 22, David reveals that he knew that Doag's presence meant bad news and he was right because all of Nob is going to be wiped out. Now, we've only covered one of David's two needs, his need of food, and starting in verse 8, he shares a second need, a weapon, which only raises the question if there might be a more important need that he's overlooking. Verse 8. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword at hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here, wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that, give it to me. Now, David continues with his deception and indicates that the reason that he has no weapon is because the king sent him on his mission in haste. The real reason, of course, is because back in chapter 19, Saul had messengers who tried to kill David, and his wife, Michael, had to help him escape their own house by lowering him out of window. He hasn't been home since, and he needs a weapon for his protection. Now, the good news is that Goliath's sword, the very sword that David had used to cut off the giant's head back in chapter 17, had been stored at Nob. But this weapon and its location should have collectively given David pause. Why do I say this? Well, if you recall David's preparation to battle Goliath, King Saul had tried to outfit him with his own armor and with his own sword, and David rejected them. Instead, he took his familiar sling and stones and he challenged the Philistine giant with these words. You may remember them from a few weeks ago. He said, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. Where is that same confidence? Where is that same dependence on the Lord Almighty? Seeing Goliath's sword should have reminded David of who the hero was in the first place. It was Yahweh, it was God Himself. But there's something else that should have gotten David's attention because the text tells us that the sword is behind the ephod. And I think this level of detail is here for a reason. Because the ephod was a priestly garment that was attached to the breastplate that contained the urim and the thummim. These were the objects used by the priest to inquire of the Lord and to seek his will. And seeing the ephod should have been a reminder to David that he has asked Ahimelech for physical provision and protection without requesting the priest to seek God's counsel or his wisdom or his supernatural divine protection. You know the old phrase, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission? It's not in the Bible. And as a pastor, I can tell you that it's always best to seek wise, godly counsel before doing something significant, major life decisions, situations that require God's wisdom, instead of forcing yourself and others to handle the cleanup. Now, in my 15 years as a pastor, very few people have come to me and asked advice about marrying the person that they're dating. But I've spent countless hours trying to help marriages that could have benefited from those initial conversations. We can understand why David is in panic mode, simply trying to escape the multiple attacks on his life. But here he is, he has a safe person in Ahimelech, the high priest of God's people And David would have been wise to do what kings were supposed to do and to ask the Lord, what should he do next? But sadly, he doesn't do that. He ignores the ephod and what it represents to grab the sword of the Gentile giant that he had defeated in God's power in his name years ago. And then in verse 10, in a variation on the theme, David continues his flight of fear by heading, of all places, to Goliath's hometown. Seemingly on a search for sanctuary. Verse 10. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. Now, why on earth? Why on earth does David go to Gath? The neighboring Philistines have been Israel's chief enemies for some time. And they're enemies of God. But verse 10 gives us a hint as to why he would go to Philistia. Philistia. He's fleeing from Saul, that is from Saul's territory, from Saul's kingdom. And the words of Achish later in verse 15 where he says, in my house, suggest his angle. David's looking to join the king's court, perhaps as a mercenary. And this shows to us just how bad Saul's leadership is because David flees to find sanctuary in service to the enemy's king because his own king is so derailed and so dangerous. But still, Gath? home of Goliath? This seems like a pretty bad idea, and it is, especially when the king's people recognize him in verse 11. And the servants of Achish said to him, is not this David the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. I'm not going to sing that. What's so ironic about their recollection of the song is the fact that it was sung by Israel's women to celebrate David's defeat of Goliath. The song of David's victory has made it all the way back to the loser's hometown. In essence, what they're doing as they sing this is they're reminding Akish, this is the guy who took down our champion. Verse 12, and David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Akish, the king of Gath. You think? David's come to Gath, hoping to hide himself in the king's court, but now he's been recognized as an enemy combatant and the future king of Israel. And once again, he's afraid. He showed no fear when he faced their giant, but now he fears their king. He finds no confidence in the Most High God. He does not call on the Lord. Instead, verse 13, he acts insane. And so he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. And then Akish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? Don't I have enough crazy already? Needless to say, this isn't a good look for David. He should have never been put in this position in the first place. Saul and his faithless, selfish, vengeful leadership are the ultimate problem. But David is running scared. He doesn't seek God like he should. And as a result, he ends up doing sinful and foolish things. But coming to the end of our rope is a great place to be. Because when we have nowhere to turn but to God, then there's no mistake. For anyone who might be paying attention, that He alone is our deliverer. In the face of fear, we must depend desperately on God, our deliverer. And while it's not recorded in our passage, we know that God, that David's, David eventually responds to these events with dependence on God. We know because he wrote two psalms after this experience in Gath, Psalm 34 and Psalm 56. The headings or the inscriptions of the psalms tell us as much. And we're going to sing one of the psalms, Psalm 34, in response to the sermon because it's an anthem of faith and finding refuge in God in the face of fear. But before we do that, we're going to look more closely at the other psalm, Psalm 56. I want to invite you to turn there with me now. And what we find from David's spirit-inspired pen is the lesson he learned from these episodes in Gath, a lesson of desperate dependence on God. There's little to commend about his behavior in 1 Samuel 21, but there's much to glean from the faith he displays in this psalm. So let's look together at Psalm 56, verses one through four. Be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I'm afraid, I put my trust in you. In God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? And we mentioned at the beginning that there are three broad categories of fear, money, people, and death, with people being the most complicated. And it's clearly people and the harm that they can inflict that are the source of David's fear in this psalm. It's not hard for us to imagine the enemies that David is referencing, having just read that passage. But notice that he opens with an appeal to God's grace. We finally see him facing God, beseeching God, and simply naming his fears out loud. Now, I've recently come to the place of recognizing something. I I came just a few weeks ago to come to the place where I recognize that I have a fear of death. My own death and the fear of my loved ones. And it's, it's manifested in some very unsettling ways. But after literally decades of this fear hovering below the surface of my life, popping up here and there, I've finally been able to say it out loud. I have a fear of death. And sometimes we're too afraid to say what we're afraid of. but there's tremendous power in giving names to our fears. For one, it serves as a confession. Confessing our sin and our lack of faith is a critical part of our fellowship with God. And when we acknowledge our fears, what we do is we replace self-protection and hiding the things of Adam and Eve after they sinned with openness and honesty. And it opens the door to deeper intimacy with God. But there's another benefit to naming our fears. It helps us know how to pray specifically for God's intervening help. And and that's what David does as he declares his confidence in God's presence and power and care and comfort. He continues in verse 5. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. For their crime will they escape? In wrath, cast down the peoples, O oh God. David returns to unloading the overwhelming burden of his circumstances. Just imagine the turmoil that he's experienced. One day he's anointed to be king, a battle hero whose name is praised by the people, beloved by King Saul, serving in his court, marrying his daughter, and now here he is, a hungry fugitive in hiding on the run from the same man after escaping numerous attempts on his life. He rightly calls for God's justice. And in verse 8, he turns his attention back to the character and work of God. You have kept count of my tossings, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? Then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. This I know that God is for me. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? Now tossing here refers to David's aimless swaying to and fro like a bottle bobbing on the waves of circumstance. And there's not one time that we've done this that the Lord hasn't known. He placed us in those situations in the first place. David's referencing to collecting our tears and recording them in his ledger is simply to say, God sees all. He knows every fear, every pain, every hardship, every loss. He sees, he knows, and he cares. And in the end, David knows that his enemies will receive justice and that his God is for him. Do you know this? Can you say with the same confidence that God is for you the way that David says it in this psalm? Because if you can't, please don't leave here today without hearing this appeal. There's one way to know if God is for you. And one of the many places in the Bible that we find it is in Romans chapter 8. And just as David asked the question, what can man do to me? The Apostle Paul asks and answers a similar question in verse 31 of Romans 8. He asks, if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he goes on to list a whole bunch of potential fears. Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord we know that God is for us because he loves us and we know that he loves us because he proved it by giving his one and only son and if you've placed your trust in the finished work of Christ, his impeccable life, his death in sinner's stead, his resurrection from the grave, and his ascension to glory, then you can say, without wavering, that God is for you. And nothing can separate you from his love. Not lying. Nothing. Nothing. It doesn't matter if this is the first day that you've heard this message and your heart has responded in faith or you've believed it for decades. We all need this reminder because we are sinners who deserve judgment. We cannot place ourselves above the people of these passages. And we all have fears that will eat our lunch. But if nothing can separate us from God's love and nothing can, then fear has no power only the power we give it. We simply need to give our great deliverer thanks and walk in faithful repentance, which is how David closes Psalm 56. I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death, yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Now, as our study continues... David will continue to struggle with this lesson that he learned from Gath. Just like he does in the psalm that he wrote in response, he'll continue to yo-yo between faith and, and the objects of his fear. And I can relate. Can you? I'm so glad that the Bible presents people as they really were with all their faults and fears and failures because they're just like us. Sinners in need of a Savior. David isn't the perfect hero that we long to emulate. We begin to see that in this passage. But guess what? Jesus is. Jesus is. And his spirit lives in us if we trust him. Fear will never go away in this life. But because of his spirit, we can face it head on with faith. It's a daily process of naming our fears and our sins and trusting the God who can and will deliver us both now And forevermore. And we must replace our our desperate, deceptive dealings with dependence on the one true God. Only His sovereign grace to us in Christ can fortify us to walk before Him in the light of life as we wait together as a church family, the kingdom to come, the kingdom in which there is no fear, no tears, no enemies, no death, the kingdom in which we need not hide nor lie but only receive the Father's loving embrace because he is for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you that in Christ you are for us. We thank you for sending him to us, that you love the world so much that you would send your son to die, our savior, our deliverer, And I pray for each of us as we face many fears in this life, that you would deliver us from them, that you would give us the very faith we need to walk before you in life and to depend on you day after day. We pray that you would help us by your Spirit's power in Jesus' name, amen.